Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Hyperthesis Podcast. We're happy that you could join us for, I believe it's our 13th episode now, with a lot of interesting topics. But before we begin, I'll introduce myself and say hi, I'm Patrick. I'm Feely. And I'm Liam. And this is the Hyperthesis. So before we get really into our main topic, we have a couple just sort of little topics that we'd like to talk about just things that we've learned that are new to us or that are new in the news. So to start out, I I believe that Liam has some interesting things about Steam. Uh, well, I, I don't have a very uh, quantitative description of Steam prepared. However, the, my, my, uh, I'm in Ottawa right now at my girlfriend's place, and they have this teapot this kettle and you know you boil water in it and it makes a high-pitched noise so i thought about it and said oh that'd be an interesting thing to look into so i looked up the physics of teapots or kettles and the whistling noise they make so a teapot or a kettle is some kind of device that you use to bring water to a boil um where you use the boiling water to make tea or coffee or whatever you can use it for cooking um, so you you take this thing, usually it's made of metal, fill it with water, you put it on a hot element, like a stove or a burner, for example. Uh, after a while, the water heats up, comes to a boil at around 100 degrees Celsius. Um, and when it does this, the pot produces a high-pitched whistling noise to kind of let you know that it's done. And you you see this in movies and TV shows a lot. Usually when people are stressed out, it makes this high-pitched noise. Fun fact, Harry Bramston, the inventor of the whistling tea kettle, I have no idea who that is, but that's what the internet told me, so I have to believe it no matter what. So I, I, I was basically interested in what makes this noise. So once the water gets to its boiling point, um, you know that it begins evaporating from its liquid form into its gaseous form, so steam, and it's produced within the pot. So there's this hole in the kettle that's always there, and the steam can escape from it, um, even when the water is not boiling yet. However, once once it begins boiling, the pressure inside the pot becomes powerful enough that it shoots the air out of this hole at a high speed. And it's the vibration this air has against the hole, which causes the noise. Um, it's actually kind of just like a whistle, like a tin whistle or like a, um, like a recorder that you might have learned in school. Um, other types of instruments, like their whistles are like flutes, piccolos, pipe organs. It's just the type of whistle, it turns out. So it's it's a fluid mechanics problem. And by understanding the geometry, the dimensions, the properties of the fluid, which in this case is air and steam, um, you can predict this noise. And it turns out um, it's called a hole tone. So this noise that the, the kettle makes as the steam shoots out of the hole. And it turns out that, well, maybe not every kettle or pot, but, you know, a typical, a good example of a kettle um, it's almost a perfect whole tone. And by whole, I mean H-O-L-E, not W-H-O-L-E, uh, to clarify. And what I thought was particularly interesting about this was that this is a very well-known thing. Um, kettles have been around for quite a while. But interesting, interestingly enough, this phenomenon was not actually understood properly fully until 2013, uh, when a paper called The Aeroacoustics of Steam Kettle, of a Steam Kettle, was published by a fourth-year engineering undergrad uh, and a supervisor. So I thought that was pretty neat. This 
And, and I find that happens a lot in physics, actually. You have these super well-known things that happen, and it's not until many, many years later that people look into it. Like, people have a rough understanding of what's going on, but they don't get into the kind of fine mathematical details until later in time. That's really fascinating, and a couple of questions come to mind. Like, what exactly, I guess, is the big difference between this type of whole whistle and something like a flute where you have partial air passing over say a hole and part of it going in or like a pipe organ where you have very obvious um openings within the actual instrument itself whereas this it's just a single hole with steam being forced into it i've never really thought about that so that's very interesting to think about the difference and why exactly they are different. Yeah, and it, I think it reminds me of when you blow into an empty jug or a bottle and it makes a, a noise, like a Ooh. noise. But I think that's different because it's not... It, when I think of a whistle, I think of air going in one end and coming out the other, where the bottle it goes in one and comes out the same end. So I'm not sure of the exact differences, but it it depends on kind it's a fluid dynamics problem so it depends on your reynolds number which is basically just kind of the ratio of how viscous some some fluid is compared to how fast it's moving it depends on what your fluid's made out of um how big the hole is kind of resonant stuff but yeah i i don't quite know however from a quick look online if you just google uh whole tone or like the kettle whistling effect or something like that. There's an entire very in-depth Wikipedia page on um whistles and it goes into kind of like all these different instruments and the different types of kind of whistling you can have and I think it explains the differences between them all. Interesting. I I know we did an episode on sound previously, so go check that out. But um yeah, it, it might be interesting to maybe delve deep into the physics of different instruments, like a trumpet versus a pipe organ versus a tin whistle and all these different instruments just to see what are the differences and really dive deep into that. Yeah, that's something I want to do too, because the episode on sound we did, I, I could talk about sound all day. Um, and I don't, there's a lot I don't know about it still, but I'm extremely interested in it. Like, I just think it's, we, we talked about this in our previous episode, but I think it's very interesting how you can have different types of sound, but with the same frequency um, and stuff like that. So yeah, I, we should definitely do an episode where we talk about different types of instruments. Maybe we could have a few episodes where one's on stringed instruments, one's on whistles, blah, blah, blah. Agreed. So as, as a bonus topic, if no one else has any other comments... Um, something that I learned that's really fascinating from this past week is exactly how electric eels zap. So similar to kettles whistling, electric eels are kind of in the public mindset of, oh, they do this thing, but it's not as common for people to ask, oh, well, why do they do this thing? So electric eels, which are commonly found in the Amazon river, uh, and within the rainforest area uh, are aquatic fish, technically. They aren't eels. They're more closely related to catfish. But they have a dedicated organ that's able to produce electricity. And when I say produce electricity, it's not like, um, oh, yeah, it's just like 
creating some sort of static electricity and discharging it. Instead, it's actually creating a potential across the length of a specific electricity producing organ and then firing that intentionally based on signals to those electric producing cells. So in movies and TV and things, when I see electric eels electrocute things, you see all these like lightning bolts come out of it and it's like and it makes like the electric noise. But I imagine that doesn't actually happen. I imagine it's more like if you accidentally touch something with a high uh, voltage and it you just kind of stiffen up and it makes a big it makes like a very sudden zappy noise and you go, ah! <laughs> well, I, I imagine if you had like a very dark room and maybe a very well-exposed sensor, like a camera, then you might actually be able to see it because they're in salt water. So they're in the part of the Amazon that's a little bit saltier than just natural fresh water. And so you would think that you might be able to see some sort of evidence of these shocks. But the thing with the shocks is that they last only, I think it's just a couple to a few milliseconds. But the interesting thing about how they produce them is one, they can control how much charge essentially they can dispel at once. And then they can also use those different uh, essentially levels of electric shock to do different things. So the electric shock itself is created within cells within their specialized organs. And now these cells, each one you're able to connect, they're able to produce a potential across them. So one side is slightly positive, one side is slightly negative. And there's a whole bunch of these cells in series. So for anyone that's taken really any electronics work, course or has worked with batteries in any real case whatsoever you'll know that as you add up batteries together they create a higher voltage and so these cells that create just a little bit of a potential across them there is many of them stacked together and they're actually acting exactly like a battery where each one has a small little potential and then they're able to create this overall massive potential like i'm talking I believe it's over a thousand volts kind of thing and up to one amp. Well, yeah, I think it was like around 800 volts or something. But I think, I mean, their cells are connected in series, right? If you want to add up the voltage because, you know, if you add it in, in parallel, you're going to have the same voltage as one battery, but maybe you get more amperage out of it. Yeah, but it's, it's interesting how kind of the evolution side come out like what what makes this is the strange randomization that doesn't happen in in like land animals you know you don't see electric sapping um, bird or something they might exist somewhere who knows it's such a kind of the random randomized process of nature is kind of weird well air is not very conductive right um, and I, again, I, I don't know anything about biology. I don't know how over millions or billions of years, well, maybe not billions, but, you know, thousands and millions of years, how an animal somehow develops a battery within itself that it can discharge to keep, you know, predators off of it. But I can understand that it's a sea animal opposed to an, 
a land or an air animal because the air is a very low conductance, um, whereas water is definitely a lot more conducting. Especially salt water. Yeah. And there are actually a few different species that are not these electric eels that also produce electricity, but electric eels are by far the most potent in their voltage. Uh, and speaking of evolutionary terms, it's interesting. The, the main theory right now is that these essentially little battery cells inside of them are specialized muscle cells. Because if you think like when you uh, get an EKG or an ECG where they measure your heart rhythm, that's all electrical impulses. And so when you flex a muscle, that's coming with some sort of little electric current to actually get your muscle to move. And so just specialize that a little bit, and then you get this dedicated organ, which is able to produce a giant zap. Well, well when I learned about taxonomy, I think one term they use is fitness, right? For, for evolution and stuff, you know, what type of traits contributes more to the survival of the species? And electricity is such a, to me, it's just a great tool. Like you can kill a large animal with electricity easily, right? Like I'm surprised it's not evolved more in land. Imagine like you have a snake and you just like, you know, cling onto you and shock you to death. That just, that's terrifying. I'm surprised it's not a big thing. Maybe the, the stochastic process wasn't um, exactly, you know, lucky this time. Yeah, it's very interesting that we don't have more, given the number of species that we have on Earth, that there aren't more electrical ones. But having a snake shock you to death would be terrifying. It might be that the uh, people who, who got um, in touch with those species just never get to live to tell the tale because... You know, you just never get out. <laughs> Nevertheless, I feel like, you know, to move on a little bit to our main topic. So we had nice story, um, little news on the electric eels and a bit about, you know, the pot calling kettle whistle whistling. Anyways, <clears throat> so our main topic today is going to be about the optics and eyes and how we visually perceive the world. And there's a lot into eyes and the physics of it um, and also the biology of it, the anatomy of it. But eyes one of the most complex organs in our body, you know, be able to collect these light and photons. And I think our brain interprets it really well, right? But I feel like, you know, it's just crazy how we can perceive things to this fine details of the world around us. So. I think Liam's got a big topic on this. Well, uh, I am by no means an expert. Um, so we did an episode where we talked about sound, like we said, and we talked about the human ear a little bit. So, so I figured it'd be fun to talk about the eye. And again, there's, the eye is a very complicated thing. Um, and I'm going to kind of give you a, a, a theoretical physicist point of view. So it's going to be very simplified. Um, so yeah, sight is it a very important sense. You know, you, I don't know about you, but I use it a lot. And not being able to see can make your life a lot more difficult in a world where many things are based on seeing. So so what is seeing? We see things with our eyes. You know, I'm looking at my laptop right now. I can 
see that it has letters on it. I can see light coming out of it. Um, so light is just, well, it's a particle and a wave. and We should probably have another episode about that, but I'm not going to get into it. Basically, it's electromagnetic waves um, or photons. And they're emitted from the sun in huge amounts or from light bulbs or even from bioluminescence. There's different ways to get photons, um, but the sun is kind of the main source the Earth has. And emits just this huge amount of light. And a lot of it fires off into space, but a small amount of it hits the Earth. And it hits an object, so say like a car, you know, you're standing on the side of the road and you see a car. All this sunlight comes down, it hits the car and it bounces off in all these different directions. And some of that enters your eyeball. And that's how you see a car. You see reflecting light off of things. It enters your eye. Your eyes kind of turn that signal into something that goes to your brain. And then your brain gives you an image. Well, there's, there's a very, there's one heck of a detour to get into a sight uh, from the sun, from the stars. Yeah, but basically just um, light in hitting the cells that um, the, the purpose of those cells are to interpret or change from light to electricity, basically, right? Like, I, mean, I remember from my biology class, you know, the, the cone cells in your eyes are responsible for the color and whatnot, and they can get tired and stuff, right? So imagine if you look at the room with red light, and you, so your red cells would be so tired, you walk out, you can see less red. And, and to me, that's just literally is an organic um, photoelectric uh, effect, basically just convert photons or light into electricity or some kind of voltage or current that our brain can process. Yeah, that's exactly it. And I, I don't know that exact mechanism. That's actually a good question, and I now I want to know. I didn't, I didn't look into that. I just kind of skipped the biology and chemistry details a bit just because I, you know, I'm, I'm not that great at chemistry and biology. But yeah, so when you see something, that's exactly it. Light's hitting your eye it's going and I'll, I'll get into some of the parts of the eye in a minute um but we see things in color or some people do some people don't and what that is is that um basically the what you see is determined by the frequency of the light that enters your eyes so there's all different kinds of frequencies of light many different kinds um but we can't see all of them so for example infrared light and ultraviolet light are two kinds that we can't see um, and it just depends on its wavelength or frequency. So we can only see light that has around a 400 to 700 nan nanometer wavelength. So that's that's pretty small. Um, 400 being um, kind of violet and 700 nanometers being red light. And when we see a color, oh, sorry, I should mention that that 400 to 700 is kind of the visible spectrum. It's the rainbow. Anything outside of it is some other color that we can't see or perceive. perceive. You know, it's like, it's trying to imagine like what a fourth dimension looks like. Well, we can't really do it because we live in three dimensions. It's like, well, what is the color of infrared? Uh, well, we don't know. So we just we use cam. We can use a different camera that sees infrared light. And we can assign it some other color. Uh, just to add in, it's interesting to see images that are taken in infrared or ultraviolet or even X-ray because false color has to be added to them so we can actually interpret them. So. Going back to a previous episode with the James Webb Space Telescope, any image you see from there is infrared, but it was given false color just to so that we can better understand it. Exactly. And it's even like you see um 
Well, I my, I always think the kind of like Call of Duty, like war video games, you see these infrared cameras that you're looking through scopes at people with, and they're glowing like bright red or bright white. It's because the human body is constantly emitting infrared radiation. Uh, we can't see it because, you know, we don't see people glow all the time. Um, so you can use a camera and you can assign kind of a visible color. The camera can detect those frequencies of light and then we kind of give it a color so that we can visualize it. Yeah, and the uh, resolution of the eye is is crazy because if you think about um, the camera, right, it needs like a, a large sensor for pretty high resolution. Our eyes are around like 576 million pixels and that's a lot. You think of your iPhone or smartphone camera, you know, the top tier one probably around you know, 20 mil at most, 20 million pixels are not, they're not doing that great either. And like professional cameras can go up to 10, 15, or even 40 million pixels. And like the medium format is one of the largest one. So it'd be like a large sensor, like six by nine centimeters wide of the sensor size. Around, it can get only around 120 million pixels. And that's a lot when you use for uh, photography and stuff, but it's nowhere near like the eye, the small sensor, the eye have like four or five more times resolution is, is to me, that's insane. Yeah. The eye is an extremely interesting organ. And what's really cool about it is that if you take like a, like a camera, you know, that you're taking pictures at a wedding with a part. Many of the kind of components in the camera are kind of the same in your eye. Like it has a lens, your eye has a lens, and I'll, I'll talk about that in a minute. Um, but it's it's really cool. And what's it? I citation needed for this, but I remember my old supervisor was talking to me about um the human eye and how it's so sensitive that it can detect a single photon in complete darkness, and that kind of blew my mind because a single photon is a very 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 low energy thing. Um, a photon with within the visible spectrum. So if you're in a completely dark room, you fire a single particle of light into someone's eye, they'll notice it. And that kind of blew my mind. Yeah, and and also the eyes, uh, biologically, if, uh, in terms of evolution, we were, it was made to, for sight underwater. It's not for air. Like, uh, historically, I think, because mammals were in the water, I think most, most animals were in the water before, right? so the eyes were evolved to be able to see underwater. That's why, like, we have liquids in our eyes, and when we get up onto land and to millions of years, we still retain that water. But when you think, like, well, it was not pure water, that, that liquid in our eyes. But to think about it, it's, it's fascinating how our brain has to reinterpret that to have these nice um, ratio and perspective because the light would get refracted before it gets into our retina, which is basically the, the sensor. And, and that's going to skew our perception a bit, but our brain is so used to it. Like, what is straight light? But the light is going in. Because if you think of camera, it just goes through the lens and air and lens and air and then sensor. But our eyes go through the lens and go to liquid and to the retina. Yeah, so maybe I, maybe I should describe kind of the basic kind of parts of the eye. But before I do that, let me finish up my kind of what is color. So color is basically just the wavelength of light. And white light consists of um, all the colors, essentially. It consists of every wavelength of um, the visible spectrum. And the sun doesn't emit pure white light. It emits 
basically pure white light, but there's tiny little bits of it missing, but it, it's white enough. Um, so if I look at a car and white light hits it, so when, when the sun emits white light and it comes, hits the earth by chance and reflects off of it into my eye, whatever material that car is made out of, it'll absorb some of the light and reflect some of it. Nothing's a perfect absorber and nothing's perfect at reflecting. So if I see a red car, that means it primarily absorbed every color in the visible spectrum besides red light, and the red light was primarily the one that bounced off of it. So what you're seeing through an object is the, the light it reflects. And that's why the sky is blue, is because it prim it well it's blue and it's red at sunset, but that's that's another discussion. But it's blue basically because it scatters blue light off of it more than it does the other colors, and that's what hits your eye. Yeah, and that's why people like wearing white in a hot day because it reflects all the you know, all the lights, right? And you're wearing black, like you're hotter. It 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 actually get you warmer too. Like yeah, that's the. Uh, well, that's the fascinating thing about color when you think it's a little bit counterintuitive because you think, oh, there's there's a property of of the thing is is red, but it's actually is a color that it doesn't want. The object doesn't want that color, so it spit it out for our, our eyes to see. Yeah, I remember thinking about that at one point, saying like, oh, if the car is red, that means it likes every, it absorbs every color except red. So it's 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 not red in a way, but it is because that's what it's reflecting. Um, so how does an eye work? Again, it's quite complicated, so this is my kind of simplified um, version of it. So your eye, or just one eyeball, say, it's this roughly spherical thing, and it's filled with different liquids and components. Um, but the kind of, one of the main components um, is the aperture, so this kind of controls how much light enters your eye. And that's essentially your pupil. So the pupil is this hole that leads to the inside of the eye. So when it's really bright out, your people shrink to let less light in so they don't kind of damage your retina, which is the retina, um, I'll get to that in a second, but that's what absorbs the light and sends a signal to your brain. When it's dark out, your pupils expand and they let more light in so you can see better at night. So just to clarify, it's the iris that does the expanding and the shrinking. Yeah. And the, so, so the iris is like the actual aperture and then the pupil is the resulting hole. So it's the... And the iris itself is like a, a muscle that expands and contracts. And that's a mm -hmm. pretty color part of your eye. Yeah, sorry. Yeah, that's that's a better explanation. So why 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 is the iris colored? Is there a reason? I don't know. It's similar to like melanin in your skin. It's just some pigmentation. But if you have blue eyes, then you don't have pigment. Yeah, it's, it's just basically just genetic mutation, right? And I think it people didn't have blue eyes to feel... I think million years ago, where it was like a, a like an anomaly that became you know passed on a lot. If you see like Asia, we don't have you know, light color eyes much, right? Because I think that's pretty rare. It just happened in certain part of the world, and then it just spread out a little. Okay. So yeah, there's there's the iris, the aperture, and then the pupils, the hole that leaves, which lets light in. Um, and that muscles kind of, yeah, the iris, the muscles kind of contract and expand it depending on how much light wants to get in. And I'm skipping some components, like there's some, I'm, I mean, I'm skipping a lot, but these are kind of the the important bits as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> um, so behind the pupil, there's a lens, and it acts like you'd think. It's kind of like any lens in physics. So it, light enters it, it focuses it, um, and that lets you see things clearly assuming your eyes work um 
and it's like a magnifying glass, right? Like you see on TV and stuff, or maybe you see it in person. If you hold a magnifying glass in the hot sun, it will focus the light on to a point, and you can burn ants and stuff, which it, which is kind of cruel, but it's similar idea. It just takes light and focuses it. Just another cool thing about the lens is it, it's very much like a magnifying glass, but if the magnifying glass were slightly flexible, because you have muscles in your eye that can actually control and slightly distort the shape of the lens so that when you, say, look from close an object close to you to far away, that's actually your lens slightly adjusting so you can change your focus. And the reason why you're, that gets more difficult as you get older is that starts to harden more and becomes less flexible. Yeah, that's exactly it. So at the back of your eye, you have this thin layer of cells, and it's really thin. I think it's like roughly three cells thick or something called the retina. And that's what the lens is focusing the light to. The retina is what collects the signal and transfers it to your brain. The light hits it, you see something, and then it produces that image in your head. Um, so the lens, exactly that's exactly it, Patrick. It, it focuses the light to the retina, and that's that's why you can you know, I can read something right in front of me, but I can also read like a road sign down the street. It's because the muscles um, can can they can bend the lens very slightly and it can refocus things so for example like if you're if you're kind of zoned out um looking at a book it might get a little blurry but then you kind of snap back into it your your muscles flex a little bit and things come back into focus i should just add another interesting thing about the lens within your eye is that it actually flips the image so the image that you see say just looking straight ahead on the horizon is upright but in reality, that image is flipped and your brain is flipping it back so it makes sense according to gravity, essentially. And your eye does all these other really interesting tricks too. Like I think the veins in it, technically the light passes through a bunch of veins in your eyes to hit the retina, but your, your brain kind of manually cancels those veins out, I believe. And there's some other things too, like there's optical illusions where if you're looking at something, your brain will fill in the image or it will automatically do things. It, it's very interesting. Well, I think we have to skip a lot of stuff because there's li literally a field called ophthalmology, which you have to spend four years after standard med school study just about the eyes. And to me, that's, that's a lot. There's a lot of years just for a little part, but so many muscles and whatnot. And the thing about that too is, uh, you know, we were talking about uh, focusing and defocusing of light there, right? And like be able to focus, it just a crazy thing that you can do too like it you know it changed how things are perceived right and i heard that when you're a baby i think less than one year old you can you still see the world upside down because the the brain hasn't realized that the world is upside down so the babies had to learn i don't know how they prove this in the medical um, um in the medical way that they can prove the baby see upside down. I'm not sure if that's proven. Maybe it's not. It's not. Maybe it's just a conjecture. But I, it's it's believable. I I believe it. Yeah, I I can see that babies stumble around a lot. They don't really know which way's up and which way's down. But yeah, citation citation needed for sure. But moving on, so that we stay on track. Um, where was I? Oh yeah, so the retina, the back of your eye. That's what that's what your lens is focusing things to, and it makes these very minute very very minute changes to keep things in focus depending on how far away you're looking at 
And like Beely said earlier, there's these different kinds of cells that make up the retina, and they're primarily these things called cones and rods. So, so cones are kind of responsible for the bright light processing. And again, I'm skipping over a bajillion details, but but that's fine. We're hand waving is my favorite thing to do. Um, so during the daytime, your cones are kind of more responsible for what you see, and they're good at processing color. So when the sun's out, you see a lot of color. You know green trees, like red cars, whatever. However, at nighttime, um, rods, the cells in the retina, are better for kind of these darker, dimmer light situations. Um, so as your pupil gets bigger, the rods kind of take over um, at night. And they don't process color near as well. So that's why when it's dark out, um, even if the sun's not up, there's still light um, from various sources, like street lights or the moon or kind of like light diffusing through the atmosphere. There's still light, but it's just very hard for the human eye to detect it. So these these rods um, can detect some of it, but their color processing is bad. So everything kind of looks black and grayish. Yeah, but not all cones are made equal, though, because you know that's why night vision, visually, is represented as green, because it's, you know, it's easier to see from the eyes, right? And yeah, there are a lot of, finicky things with it because when you're in a really dark room you you'll be able to see a bit but you won't see color you see this noisy black and white um picture that you know it's kind of weird but since it's part of human experience we just think it's normal but when you think of it it's just kind of strange like why are we seeing black and white in a darker room while the well the colors are kind of the intrinsic property of those materials but we just weren't able to see it because the fault in our organs basically like the limitation of this of the sensitivity which i'm surprised not solved i'm sure um, for nocturnal animals or predators that need to be able to see well they might even be able to see full color at night yeah i know there's a whole bunch of different animals that have much better night vision than we do because their eyes at nighttime are more sensitive to the light and i'm not sure about the color but yeah exactly i'm sure there are some that can see color at night um and that's another thing a lot of animals uh they they can't see a lot of colors so when you think of like a tiger like a like you know an orange and black striped tiger i was watching a documentary and i they they asked like why is it that in like a green jungle there's this orange and black tiger and i was like oh yeah that's a good question and it turns out a lot of the kind of gazelle or antelope or whatever i i might have said the wrong animal but the deer-like creatures they're hunting can't see orange and orange appears to them as green so these black and white stripes blend in perfectly with their environment for their kind of the prey they're after and it's all like this evolution and adaptation it's very cool uh i will just shout out there is a fascinating documentary series narrated by David Attenborough called Life in Color. So actually, they use modified cameras to show how different animals see. And and so, for example, the deer not seeing the tiger stripes. And there's plenty of other fantastic examples. Yeah, that's I think that's the exact documentary that's from, right? Um, And there's also this, I won't get into it, but just a quick note, there's also this really cool creature called a mantis shrimp and those things have wild eyes they're, they're like chameleon eyes they move separately they can process different things at the same time they can see 
a ton more than we can, and their eyes can even see polarization, <laughs> which is wild. Um, but I won't get into that now. So eyes aren't perfect. Um, all three of us here wear glasses for a reason, uh, and many other people do. They there can be a lot of problems with them. They're again, they're very complicated. They're very sensitive. So slight kind of discrepancies will cause problems. Yeah. Well. The color we see are a kind of, you know, I don't know how standardized it is. Like, is the green I see the same way, the same green that you see? This, you know, the age-old question, right? There was research that, oh, women see more colors. That's why they're more sensitive to little change, minute change in color. And if you think of photography, like, you know, all the phones you use, the photos you see are processed in a way that makes more sense. But if you do take like a raw data from the sensor, what people do when you do more advanced photography, you have to basically recolor it by yourself. Like you may use like what they call LUT, lookup table, to process different type of uh, signal into different color. That's why uh, some camera have different tones when you actually go shopping for cameras and such. Like Nikon has certain tone, Sony has one, Canon has one, and you know you have to pick what you like. And it's it's not might not be the most scientifically accurate, but that's to me there's no fault of the camera. It's it's by design. Each lens change the color a little bit. So yeah, everything is very sensitive to minute change. Yeah, exactly. It's this question that we might never have a good answer to but if every eye is slightly different then presumably we all see slightly colors slightly differently even if it's not by much on some level it would be so my green might not be your green but that's a tough one because there's no good way to kind of physically see how one eyeball processes a certain wavelength compared to another at least none that i know of um but to keep things moving eyeballs have slight differences and sometimes they're bad so if you need to wear glasses to see something, odds are there's a problem with your eye, even if it's a tiny problem. Um, so, for example, nearsightedness or farsightedness are kind of things that you need to wear glasses. So nearsightedness or myopia is basically you can see objects close to yourself pretty clearly, but objects far away are blurry. And it's just it's just a physical thing. It's it's not your brain processing it. It's It's the fact that the lens in your eye is bad at focusing the light on your retina. It actually focuses um, the light to be too far ahead of the retina. So if you think of kind of the eye as a, as a kind of a sphere or a circle, light comes in one end, and on the back of the uh, circle, there's this layer of cells, the retina. And the lens will focus it, but it won't focus it on the retina. It will focus it somewhere in the middle of your eye, roughly. Maybe not the direct middle. That's an over um, statement, but somewhere in front of the retina, and that will cause nearsightedness. So things far away, the light focuses too far ahead, and instead of getting this focal point on your retina, you kind of get this focal region, and the image becomes smeared or blurry. I think you explained in a quite complicated way. To me, when I remember these uh, in school, was like it was called short-sightedness, because uh, the light was focused too short on the retina, so it, it's short, it couldn't reach the yeah. retina, right? That's why the glasses we wear as uh, like as for uh, treating myopia is is the well it's a concave lens so it actually 
disperse the light. So instead of focus shorter, it makes the focus longer. So it actually focuses on the retina. And you know, if you think of long-sightedness, it's just the opposite. It's, it's too long. The focus is too long. Yeah, it's behind your yeah. retina. So it's interesting with nearsightedness especially, where your eyeball is just a little bit too long and your light's focusing is not quite to your, on your retina. Uh, and there's a growing number of people with nearsightedness. And the main theory behind that is people aren't getting outside enough because bright light will trigger a certain hormone or some sort of chemical within your body to stop your eyeball growing, but only if you get enough bright light. So if you don't get enough bright light, then that hormone isn't produced as much and your eye keeps elongating a bit. So there is definitely an increasing number of people who are nearsighted. Yeah, I can believe that. Like, even during COVID, there was like two years straight where I barely went outside. And every time I did, I was inside, my eyes were always focused at short range. There wasn't as much light. And the moment I go outside, it just felt like I had to struggle a lot more than I ever did in my life to see things far away. I had to like tense my eyes and squint. And thankfully, that's not happening anymore. But I, I can believe that. I don't think that's uh, that's your evolution pro like growth problem though. That's just being in the dark place for a long time. I think that's more about. I think that's when you actually grow up. You know, um, it's it kind of makes some sense though because if you look at uh, the world population, right? People who have smaller eyes are for from places with a lot more sun. <laughs> you know, like in Asia, we have you know. I think my eyeballs, like my own eyeballs, I think are bigger than average. Maybe because they live in the dark. I don't live in the dark. I don't know why. <laughs> but yeah, I think that's the well, thing. Well, I guess I'm not really thinking of it like genetically. I'm thinking of like muscle usage. As in, I'm inside for two years straight and I, the muscles in my eyes don't look very far near as much. So when I have to, the muscles are kind of like, uh, oh, I haven't exercised in a long time. So they struggle a little bit. But yeah, and that, like, that's why we wear glasses anyway is that if you're nearsighted short-sighted there's a other conditions you can wear glasses to fix it basically just corrects the light that's coming in so that it moves the focal point closer to your retina so you can see things better yes i think that's also why they tell kids not to stare the screen for too long too right because you just use the focus just on this one length and you're not exercising that muscle not even exercising you overuse the muscle for that uh, for that range, you're basically abusing too much, right? If you stare at the screen all day, like you, you get tired just looking something close, right? Like sometimes you need to stare far away to basically almost like use all the muscle or relax the muscle for the focusing. You know, if you play video games or look at the screen all day, like it's very tiring. And there, there's other kinds of problems you can have with an eye. Um, a very common one's in uh, astigmatism. And that's, it's, it's different from near and far sightedness in the sense that the eye itself has kind of these distort, the, the lens will have distortions in it. And instead of focusing things to a single point or like kind of a region, it'll, it'll give you different focal points depending on where you're looking and how you're looking. So glasses can't correct that very well. So people with astigmatisms, everything's kind of blurry to them, no matter if they wear glasses that correct nearsightedness or farsightedness, it, ha it has to do with imperfections in the curvature of the lens or the rest of the eye. Uh, that's untrue, actually. The, the glasses work with astigmatism really well. Like, my glasses fix my astigmatism really well. 
I don't know what you're talking about. Like yes, but it's in, in, in perfection from the from the lens, right? Because the lens is supposed to be like if you look at any of the pictures, drawings of an eye anatomy, they draw the lens like nice and smooth. But that's not always the case, right? You have imperfections and whatnot. That's why I think like LASIK surgeries go in and burn all those away with lasers. But um, the lens doesn't just do concave or convex, right? There are other things you can make a lens that correct those parts. But at the end of the day, what makes it those have um, multiple um, focal points? You can just make an inverse of that into the lens. And I don't see why you can't fix it. Well, the problem is that, yeah, some, some astigmatisms are quite easily fixed by glasses, but some of them are very extreme. And no matter what you do, you can't get it to be perfect or even close to perfect. And I don't know the details of that, but some astigmatisms, like depending on if you look one way, things are blurry. If you look up, they're less blurry. If you look down, if you look far, if you look close, a lot of them are very mild and quite easily fixed by glasses, but some of them are extreme and you have to do kind of what you just said. You have to kind of shape the lens to be better to fix it or some other part of the eye. So I guess in, in, summary the eye is quite the complicated mechanism and it's amazing itself that we have eyes i mean the the i guess the evolutionary tale of the eyes is quite extensive and also the fact that not only have we evolved eyes but other animals have evolved eyes completely separate so convergent evolution it's called but i think with that we'll have to uh, wrap up the co- topic unless there are final questions or comments. Well, I have one last thing that my f- the fallacy used to believe. I used to think that uh, contact lens have uh, like make you have a better, clearer vision, but it's actually untrue. I actually talked about autometrists about it. He's like, well, glasses are custom made to your prescriptions. Of course, it's gonna have a better, clearer vision, right? And I was like. Yeah, I try contact lens, but because my vision is really, uh, you know, it's pretty bad. So it's like, well, yeah, so true. I thought because it was closer, just on your eyes, should be better. Apparently not. Glasses are actually pretty amazing. Well, with that, if you need glasses, go get them. Hopefully your insurance covers it. If not, there are budget options. And uh, yeah, the eyes are pretty cool. So before we get on to our story, I'll just tell you about ways in which you can contact us. We are on so many different podcast platforms now, including Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. Our home base is anchor.fm slash hyperthesis, where you can find a lot of our material and some notes uh, about the episode uh, on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Feel free to leave a review and let us know if you want to hear about a certain topic. Also, if you want to contact us, you can send us an email. We are hyperthesispodcast at gmail.com. We can also be found on Instagram at the hyperthesis, where we'll post uh, random photos. We do have a couple memes on there, and we'll let you know when episodes are coming up. But follow us on different podcast feeds, and if you're interested in either hearing a discussion about a topic that you like, Or if you would like to be on the show, please send us a message either through Instagram or Gmail. And now, a story from Liam.
So this story, optical related, not not necessarily well, kind of eyeball related, but I'll get to that. It, it's about a type of lens called a Fresnel lens, and the story of a uh, a physicist slash engineer named uh, Augustin Fresnel. So Fresnel was a French engineer and physicist, and his research in optics helped change physics as we know it, helped lead to the wave theory of light. Um, and he also is kind of, again, most famous for this lens he created called the Fresnel lens, which is still in use today. And it saved many lives during his time. So his story, Augustine was, he was a sickly child born in Normandy, uh, Normandy, France, on May 10th, 1788. Um, and he was the second of four sons, so he had three brothers, one older, two younger, and he came, he was born to a fairly successful and educated family, because his mother homeschooled him and all of his siblings. His father was an architect, uh, his oldest brother was admitted to the uh, Polytechnic School, or Ecole Polytechnique, um, and became a, a lieutenant or lieutenant in the artillery before he was killed eventually. Um, rip. His younger brother followed in uh, his footsteps himself and went into civil engineering, and he actually succeeded him eventually as a secretary in the Lighthouse Commission, which comes into play in the story later. And he it also helped him, uh, Augustine, edit his papers and works throughout his lives. And then finally, his youngest brother, the fourth brother, was a noted linguist, diplomat, and uh, or um, linguist and diplomat, and he actually occasionally assisted him in uh, negotiations. So a pretty educated family and kind of like a close family, it seems, because him and his two two brothers were always kind of helping each other throughout their lives. And additionally, one of his uncles was a uh, paint artist who focused on the chemistry of painting, uh, who was also who became a professor at the uh, Polytechnic University. And it was because of this connection to his uncle that he was actually later to collaborate with kind of the world's leading optical physicist during his day. So as a kid, um, Fresnel was considered kind of a slow, a slow child and not very good at memorizing things. So he struggled in school, and compared to his siblings, he was the slowest. Um, and even at the age of nine, people still didn't consider him smart or anything like that. However, he had the ability, weirdly enough, to turn tree branches into toy bows and guns that worked far too well. So he kind of earned amongst some of his friends um, the kind of title of the man of genius as a kid or the french translation of it at least in late 1804 this is a while later after his childhood he got accepted into the polytechnic school um in place 17th in its entrance examination and this 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 university slash school didn't start keeping records until 1808 so we don't know too much about his time there um, somehow we, we know that he didn't really make too many friends while he was there. However, in his first year, he took a prize for a solution to a geometry problem, which was posed by the famous mathematician, uh, Legendre. So even though as a kid, people didn't consider him smart, it turns out you don't need to memorize things to be smart. <laughs> so he eventually graduated from there and he enrolled in the National School of Bridges and Roads, which is where he became an engineer, and graduated in 1809. And he entered service as an ordinary engineer in training. And he remained under their employment in some form slash way for the remainder of his life. So 
during Fresnel's time, optics was not this fully understood thing. I mean, it's not, it's still not perfectly fully understood, but back then it was significantly less understood. There were many different phenomena which cannot be described by geometric ray optics, so all these other theories had to be kind of proposed, and some of them worked in certain situations, some of them worked in others, but they, they didn't work in everything, and some of them disagreed with each other, and some scientists just straight up to believe some, even if they worked, um, because it turns out some scientists are very stubborn. So one example is uh, Newton's corpsular um, theory of light, which is kind of a predecessor to the quantized theory of light, which is which is photons. Um, and then there's all these other theories, but I won't get into them. However, one of them was the wave theory of light, um, which was proposed by uh, Christian, or sorry, yeah, Christian um, Huygens, or I, I'm probably saying that wrong. Do you guys know how to pronounce that? Me either. I, 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 every time I say it, I say it differently. Um, if someone knows how to pronounce it, message message us on Instagram or email us. Tell me I'm doing it wrong. But um, Huygens proposed this wave theory in the 1600s, and not many people liked it. I don't know why, but there was not very many supporters of it. However, Thomas Young, which is another famous physicist, um, showed an ex important experimental result which agreed with this wave theory. And that was the double slit experiment, which we definitely need to talk about at some point because it's super important in physics. And this showed that light actually behaved of, as a wave and had interference effects. So light can interfere with, with itself, it can diffract and all kinds of things. Um, but Young was one of the only public defenders of this wave theory, and this was because of the ether problem. Um, but that problem is, again, another topic which we've mentioned before, which was disproved. So he was one of the only public defenders until Fresnel came along. So without going through all the details, basically Fresnel independently worked out his kind of own wave theory, which, which matched this previously proposed one. And with some help from with um, with help from some other scientists, he came up with this convincing argument <clears throat> as to why wave theory is a correct theory and why it works. And this kind of was actually the the first step in overturning um, Newton's corpsular theory and supported Young's double-slit experiment. And even by uh, 1821, he was actually able to show via, you know, physics and mathematical methods that his wave theory could actually describe polarization, where that was something that previously people couldn't quite understand. I mean, he came to the conclusion that polarization is only possible if light is a wave, and it's an entirely transverse wave. It has no longitudinal vibration whatsoever. So that'll mean something to the physicists out there. And finally, the lens. Where does the lens come in? So. His brother worked at the Lighthouse Commission, and I think that's probably where this connection came from. He's, um, there was a big problem in lighthouses at the time, that if you want to produce a lens, like the lens in our eye we talked about, or the lens in your glasses, or a magnifying glass, if you want, want, want one for a lighthouse, it's this massive piece of glass. It's this enormous thing. It'd be super heavy. It's very expensive to make how do you get it up there very easily and another problem is that this piece of solid huge glass for a lighthouse you want to take light from some source say like a fire or something and you want to project it out into the sea so people can see it far away through clouds through fog 
in the during the night, whatever, so that they can see the land and kind of not run into it, basically. One problem with having a solid piece of massive glass or whatever material they use to make it is that it absorbs a ton of the light that goes through it. So even if it focuses this light, the light that comes out is very weak. Much of it has been absorbed. It doesn't transmit through. So this was a big open problem at the time. And Fresnel, <clears throat> probably because, again, of his brother, he came up with this, I, this way to create a very thin lens that focused the light very well. And this was the Fresnel lens. So it's this series of kind of steps. Um, if you just Google Fresnel lens, you'll see what I mean. It's very cool looking. It's a series of steps in a circular shape. And it has this, it, it creates a very good focal point. It's very thin. Um, it, it can even be as thin as a sheet, just a sheet of glass. It, it doesn't absorb much light at all. And it's a lot cheaper to make and easier to move around and whatnot. So he solved a, very, a bunch of different problems in one. And he wasn't the first person to come up with this idea, but he was kind of the first person to perfect it and commercially make it available. Um, so this Fresnel lens was a very, very good invention, and it saved so many different lives during his time because of lighthouses, and it's been called the invention that saved a million ships. And even today, Fresnel lenses are still used everywhere. They're used in traffic lights. Um, they're used to correct several visual disorders, and I don't know the details of that, but I remember I when I was younger, I, I saw some kind of um, specialized contact lens that was actually like a Fresnel lens, and I forget what the purpose of it was, but I think it helped for reading. Citation needed again. Um, it's used in photography, and automobile headlights are actually Fresnel lenses, because if you think of it, it would be, it'd be kind of, it, it's better to have a small thin sheet of some kind of glass or plastic or whatever inside your car to project your headlights instead of this big thick one. Saves on material, saves on space, doesn't absorb light. Um, they're used in image projectors, and they even have applications in solar power. So not only did these lenses save many ships, but they still probably save lives all the time in motor vehicles. You know, you're driving at night, you see something in the distance, you brake. Yeah, I think to note a bit, because uh, the Fresnel lens, well, you can notice it by the, the jaggedness of it. You think of lens as smooth curve, but to make it thinner, they just basically figure out how to make like this really looking weird shaped jacket, like, you know, like a, like a saw type of lens, and it works pretty well. Yeah, it's very cool looking. It's like this kind of circular staircase of, of glass. It's very, I definitely recommend looking it up. Um, it's very fun looking. And if you have a VR headset, chances are that has a Fresnel lens as well, just so that they get that thin and lightness going on. So that's that's kind of the that's the basic story of Fresnel and how he helped um, change how we understand physics with his contributions to wave theory, and as well as his famous lens, which has saved millions of ships and probably more than millions of lives. And with that, we will end our episode. Join us next week for what I believe will be our final episode of the season before we take a, I guess, a late summer break. But thank you, everyone, for joining us today. Feel free to reach out and contact us. And bye, everyone. Take care. We'll see you later.